0: We're going to skip around a lot today. we got a lot of scripture to cover, a lot of ground to cover, but I think this is going to be the foundational passage for us. And so, um, in fact, if if you have your Bible, you can read this in there. Uh, The verses will be on the side screens for you. Um, But why don't we do this? We don't do this all the time, but if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read the Word of God together. Would you do that? 1 John 2, verse 1 through 6. Thank you. It says this. My dear children, I write this to you. So that you will not have sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for that word. I thank you for the example that you gave us through Jesus Christ and uh, for the chance that we have to study your word this morning. And I just pray that you would show us what you'd have us to know uh, from the last week of Jesus's life. What can we gain from that? What can we learn from that? What can we see about your heart for us uh, in that last week? We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thank you, you may have a seat. I wonder um, how many of you when you were in school, or maybe you're in school now, but how many of you had at least one really great teacher that you remember that had an impact on you? Almost everyone, right, it had a really great teacher. Uh, think back to that time. Okay, if, if you're in school now, it may not be hard. But if you if it's been a few years, um, like me, you may have to think back. But think back to that time, or to that class, or to whatever it was. What what made that teacher so great? I mean, what was it that really made you remember them? That they had an impact on your life. My guess is that it probably wasn't their lectures, right? It probably wasn't so much what they taught you. I mean, you probably don't think back to that English teacher and think, man, the way she taught me to diagram a sentence, I still remember that. It was so beautiful, you know, or, or, or the, the way that he uh, could, could solve a two-column proof in that geometry class, oh, it was epic. That's probably not what you think of when you think of your great teachers, right? I mean, what for most of us, what makes the very best teachers was what they modeled for us, right? It was, it was not so much what they taught, it was how they taught. It was the example that they set for us. Their, their words were important. I mean, that was what we learned, but we were more likely to listen to their words because of who they were. Well, our series that we're in is called The Story, and we've gone through the entire Old Testament this year, uh, and right now we're in the New Testament, and this week in chapter 26 of The Story, we're talking about the last week of Jesus' life. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we said that God sent his son Jesus um, to be not just the perfect sacrifice for us, but also the perfect example. And and that's what this passage that we just read from 1 John chapter 1 says, too. I mean, if you look back at that verse, it says, verse 2, uh, "...he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins." And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the world. Uh, he, so he's the perfect sacrifice, right? And then in verse 6, it says, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So he's the perfect example for us as well. Now, does this mean that if we are in Christ, that we can live a life completely without sin, just like Jesus did? Well, No. I mean, I think that's impossible, and I think some of us have tried that, and we know we can't do that, but, but it does mean that in every area of our life, uh, we try to grow to be more and more uh, like Jesus, you know, to live as he lived, to, to practice the behavior that he modeled, because just like every great teacher, uh, we can learn as much from how he lived as what he said. And so that's true even in the last week of his life. And so what we're going to do today is uh, I'm going to tell you the story of the last week of Jesus' life. Most of you know this. Many of you know this. You've read it. You've seen it. Every year at Good Friday at Easter we talk about the last week of Jesus' life. But what I want to do is look specifically at four places, four uh, events in that last week, and what we can learn from those four places in Jesus' life. So there's four places there's four lessons that I think we can learn. And, and number one is this, and these are in your notes. If you want to follow along uh, in your worship program, you can do that. Number, the first place is on the streets of Jerusalem. As Jesus is riding into town, on the streets of Jerusalem, what we see is that Jesus models courage. And if we start in Matthew 21 of verse 7, it says this, they brought the donkey and the colt. Now this is they as the disciples. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, if you remember our study from last week, you know you remember uh, that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And because of this, he was becoming quite popular. Uh, the, The crowds had probably heard the rumors They had heard the stories of Jesus, not just being able to heal people, uh, but to raise somebody from the dead. I mean, like he took it to a whole other level with that, with that event. And so, uh, you know, he was healing the lame, he was healing leopards, but now a dead man who'd been in the grave for four days and people heard this. And all of a sudden, a bunch of people believed that Jesus might be that promised Messiah. And so we see this in their reaction. They're saying, Hosanna, it means to, it means save us or save us now. Uh, The people along the streets of Jerusalem, as he rode into town, were ready to crown him as king. They were ready for him to step in and and kick some Roman booty and and rule the world. That's what they wanted from Jesus at the time. But the irony is that while the people were shouting and praising, on the inside, Jesus was weeping. Luke 19 tells us, um, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And Jesus was weeping for them. He was hurting for them. Jesus knew what was going to happen. I mean, he predicted this. He told his disciples over and over again. Uh, He knew that they were going to turn on him and reject him. And not only that, but Jesus knew that he was riding in a town and he was one day closer to his death. I mean, he shared this with them over and over again. In Matthew 20, he said, now Jesus, or he said, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside, and he told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, we read this, and we go, I mean, man, he predicted that. He knew that. He told them this over and over again. And every time we see the disciples' reaction, they're like, we don't, we don't get it. We don't understand it. And you can kind of see that if you put yourself in their shoes, you know, because you don't want to think that one of your best friends, something bad's going to happen to them. I mean, even if they're predicting it, and even if they seem to be able to do so many other things, uh, but they denied it. But Jesus knew these things. I mean, he knew he was going to die a brutal and painful death. But what really stands out to me is that even in knowing that he would be betrayed and rejected, how courageous he was. You know, Jesus was a wanted man. Uh, We see the way that he rode into town, that he was wanted by the people, right? He was wanted by the people because of his miracles, but he was wanted by the authorities because of his teaching. They thought it was heretical. I mean, but, but Jesus, the man who never tried to draw attention to himself, I mean, the one who would heal people, and then as they left, say, hey, go and tell no one right? I mean, the, the man who said, once said, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. Clearly not trying to draw attention to himself. This man comes into town on a donkey, drawing all kinds of attention to himself, and knowing what he's facing, man, that takes some serious courage. Uh, William Barclay, a great theologian, said it like this. He said it was an act of glorious defiance and superlative courage for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, by this time, there was a price on his head. It would have been natural that if he was going to Jerusalem at all, he would have slipped in unseen and hidden himself in some secret place in the back streets. But he entered in such a way as to focus all the limelight on himself and to occupy the center of the stage. It is breathtaking to think about a man with a price on his head, deliberately riding into the city in such a way that every eye was fixed on him. It is impossible to exaggerate the sheer courage of jesus and this is such a great example for us because you know that there are going to be times when god's going to ask you to do something that requires great courage you know something that you don't want to do something that's that's going to be hard and jesus knew this as he saddled up on his donkey i mean do you know what there are going to be times in your life when you're going to have to get your donkey in gear and go too and jesus models this for us right Luke 9 tells us, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That word resolutely means to be firm in your mind, to to be confident, to be focused, to be determined. I mean, it means that Jesus was courageous. It's important for us to understand the context of what's happening here too. I mean, Jesus is coming to town on the Sunday before the Passover holiday. Now, Passover was significant. It was the Jewish holiday that celebrates the time. We we read about it earlier this year when God unleashed the 10 plagues on on Egypt. Now, you remember that last plague was that God would kill the firstborn male of every family. And so in order for the Israelites to escape death, uh, they were instructed to take the blood of an unblemished lamb, a perfect lamb, a lamb that was without any problems or defects, and they would sacrifice, they would kill that lamb And take that blood and spread it on the doorposts of their home. And then the death angel would know that if if there was a a doorpost that had blood on it, they would pass over, right? They would pass over that house and not kill the firstborn on the inside of that home. And the lives of their family members uh, would be spared. And and so from that day forward, Scripture tells us that the Jewish people celebrated Passover every year as a way to recognize God's mercy on them. And then Passover was celebrated every year by the sacrifice of a lamb. Now, so this all that we're reading about this week, this all happened on the week leading up to Passover, and that's why there were so many people in Jerusalem at the time. I mean, Jews from all over the known world would have come back to Jerusalem. They would have made a pilgrimage to be there to celebrate Passover, just like you and I may go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas. uh, They're going back to their hometown to celebrate Passover. Uh, Some people uh, claim that there may have been as many as 2 million people in this small city of Jerusalem there. And the Sunday before Passover, this is why it's significant, the Sunday before Passover was the day traditionally that families would buy uh, or choose from their own flock the lamb that would be sacrificed on the Passover Sunday. Uh, It was literally called, it was known as Lamb Selection Sunday. This is not the same thing as Selection Sunday uh, in the NCAA tournament. This is Lamb Selection Sunday. They would pick the, the perfect lamb for the sacrifice. And it just happened to be the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey coincidence? No way. It's Jesus, the Lamb of God. And the crowd didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it, but Jesus did. And again, even knowing what was ahead, he demonstrated great courage. And when it comes to faith and it comes to your life, God invites us to take great steps, steps of great courage, you know, to, to share your heart and your faith with a friend. It takes great courage sometimes. To, to set some boundaries in your dating relationships it takes great courage. I mean, to, to get baptized, like we had 22 people across both of our campuses do last week, takes great courage. Uh, I remember I, I heard the story this week of um, one of our pastors had lunch with somebody uh, earlier this week and said, hey, what's the next step for you? What's the next thing you have to do? And he said, well, I really feel like I need to get baptized. And he was like, well, we just, you know, we just did that. You know where, where, where were you? But that takes great courage sometimes, and you can live with courage too. In fact, this kind of courage comes from Jesus. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. So Jesus rode into town, into Jerusalem on a Sunday. Now, let's fast forward to Thursday of that same week uh, where we see the second location the second event and it's the last supper and most of us know uh this is the last supper although we probably don't know it as pixelated as that um but we know the painting of the last supper this is what we think of when we think of the last supper but if you turn over to john chapter 13 we step into the upper room of a house where jesus meets with his 12 disciples and it's in the upper room that we get our second lesson in the upper room jesus models service Now, the timing on this is interesting because Jesus had just been listening to his disciples argue about who is the best and who is the greatest. I mean, they sound like little kids. You know, who's going to go first? Who's going to be the best? Who's the better one at this? Who's the better one at that? But but don't beat down the disciples for that. You know that all of us have a little bit of that in us, don't we? How quickly the disciples forgot what Jesus had said. I mean, just before his arrival into Jerusalem, he spoke these words in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man... Did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus said, I came to serve. I came to die. If there was any lesson that Jesus taught over and over again, it was this one. But the disciples had a hard time learning it. Because much like us, they live in a world where things didn't really work that way. I mean, Jesus taught things like the first will be the last. And if you want to be great, you need to become a servant. And he taught like the people that are truly blessed are the ones who are poor and the ones who are meek and the ones who are mourning. I mean, Jesus' world was a bit of an upside-down world compared to our world. But that's not the world we live in. I mean, think about it. We, we don't want to turn the other cheek. We want to even the score. Right? We, we don't want to pray for our enemies. Uh, we'd rather get revenge. If there's a line, you elbow and fight your way to the front or else you line up the night before so that you can be sure to be first. And if you want to be exalted in the world, then you'd better do something to get noticed. you got to do something to fight your way into the spotlight. you got to get lots of Twitter followers or Facebook friends, or or you need to create some controversy. You know, if if you want to get noticed above all the noise, you've got to create some controversy. You've got to say some things that maybe aren't very popular. But watch the example that Jesus sets for us in John 13. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Now, in Jesus' day, the task of washing people's feet was reserved for the lowest of the low servants. An ordinary servant wouldn't even have this job. They would have a servant that was uh, specially chosen uh, for this job of washing people's feet and some of the other dirtiest jobs there were. And, and you would think that maybe once they saw Jesus doing it, that one of the disciples would have jumped into the mix and started taking his place in washing feet. But that's not what happened. All of them were probably thinking, somebody else should be doing this. But none of them thought, well, maybe I should be doing this. They're waiting for someone else. And so Jesus just kept kneeling and kept washing. And then once he finished washing, he said this. He said, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also you should wash one another's feet. I have set set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, he says, you will be blessed if you do them. You know, Jesus didn't come to serve or come to be served, but he came to serve. He didn't come to be noticed or, or to be great or to be recognized or to be rewarded or to be crowned or to be elected. He walked away from all of that. He set it down because he came to serve. Well, what does this mean for you and me? And Jesus tells us, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I've done for you. So let me ask you a question. Where in your life are you serving? And where are you waiting to be served? You know, it applies to all aspects of your life, but I'll tell you, uh, you can certainly serve through your church. I mean, what we do here on Sunday mornings and throughout the week takes every one of us. Uh, we always need more volunteers, more, more servants in just about every ministry area at Genesis. And we have Gen kids volunteers serving every week because there aren't enough people serving to allow them to take a break. I mean, it shouldn't be that way. Because if we are in Christ, we should be serving one another. Maybe, you, maybe it's not in your church. Maybe you need to identify the poor and hurting around you. And make yourself available to serve. Maybe it's at your kid's school. Maybe that's the place. Maybe God is prompting you to do some serving at home, in your neighborhood, at work, or on your college campus. Maybe you're supposed to serve your family, or your parents, or your spouse. Those are some of the hardest places to serve. sometimes the hardest thing is serving the people close to you. I mean, think about it. How do you serve a husband who's not thoughtful of your needs? How do you serve a wife who never has anything good to say about you? How do you serve a child who never, ever, ever says thank you? How do you serve a coworker who time after time again stabs you in the back? How do you serve that friend who is always taking from you and never giving? How do you serve that brother or sister who won't even get a job? But before we go discounting others, let's note something. Notice that Jesus didn't just wash feet, but he didn't discriminate. You know, on the night before he was going to be betrayed, Jesus even washed the feet of Judas. And We all need to serve. I love this story I came across this week of Rebecca Sell. Rebecca Cell was a photojournalist on assignment to capture the devastation caused by Hurricane Katrina soon after that storm hit a few years ago. And in the process, she captured a picture of a distraught New Orleans couple sifting through their waterlogged photo albums uh, when something inside of her clicked. She thought, I'm a photographer. This is what I do. I have all the equipment uh, to help them restore their pictures. And so she offered to take all of the couple's waterlogged photos back to her studio and make digital copies of them so they could preserve them forever. I mean, she just something clicked inside of her and said, I need to serve these people in some way. Well, she took them back to her studio, and her editor, Dave Ellis, saw the photo of this couple, and he suggested, hey, why don't we go back and find other people whose pictures we can restore too?" And so in January 2006, uh, with paid time off from the paper, the two of them set up shop in Mississippi, And they were inundated with 500 photos in four days. Water-spotted wedding pictures, uh, baby photos caked with moisture. Um, For each, the pair snapped a digital picture, and and, uh, they used high-tech software to erase the water spots and to restore the colors. And she said, we worked from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. every day for four days. It was a massive undertaking. And in that four days, Operation Photo Rescue was born. You know, in the years since Katrina, Operation Photo Rescue, which is now headquartered in Fredericksburg, Virginia, with more than 2,000 volunteers, has collected thousands of pictures ruined by floods and tornadoes and hurricanes in several states. And Rebecca said, it's great to be able to give people some of their history back. She said, one person told me that thanks to us, her grandmother got to see her photos again before she passed away. Moments like that remind me why I do this. And it all started with one woman's call to serve we're all called to serve on the final night of jesus's life you would think he would be thinking about himself a little bit more i mean he's got 24 hours but instead of thinking about that he sets an example for us instead in model service i mean sometimes like jesus we just need to grab a towel and start serving maybe you don't feel like serving you need to do it anyway I promise you, once you start serving, you'll never be sorry about it. When Jesus served, he, he, he demonstrated uh, life for his disciples and then he headed out to the third location I want to talk about, the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's there we get our third example. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus models for us, he models prayer. Matthew 26, 38, then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. The Bible explains that while he was in the garden that Jesus was so deep into prayer that his sweat was like drops of blood. I mean, it was anguish. One pastor said he was in the most epic tug of war, the battle between the flesh and the spirit, between pleasing himself and obeying his father's will. Matthew twenty six thirty nine says, going a little further, farther, he fell in with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. You know, when you're faced with difficult and challenging circumstances, the very first thing you should do is pray. I don't know about you, but so often I wait till pray until I have exhausted every other possibility. I mean, how many times do you hear that? Well, there's nothing left to do now but pray. You know, it just shows us that we leave prayer until the very end, till the very last thing. We've tried everything we know how to do. So now I don't know to do anything else, so let's pray. Well, what Jesus is saying, hey, you need to pray first. Jesus offered this same prayer three different times or a similar prayer. And in Scripture, the cup, when he says, please take this cup from me, the cup represents someone's life. It's Jesus' way of saying, do I really have to do this? God seems to impress on him that there is no other way. So at the end, he says, yet not as I will but as you will, it's almost God's way of underscoring what Jesus had said to his disciples back in John 14. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me. It's as if the father is reminding Jesus, hey, nobody can come to me unless you do this. You know, this is the plan. Your sacrifice is the only way that sin gets dealt with once and for all. See, the Bible teaches that there's this disease called sin and that all of us have it. And this disease is terminal. I mean, the writer of Romans says that the wages of sin is death. Now, what are wages? Wages are something you earn, right? We've all, through our actions, earned death. That's what we deserve. That's what Scripture says. But God has provided a solution to the problem of sin. And that solution doesn't come from acting better or, or cleaning up our act once and for all. The only way to be saved is through a relationship with Jesus Christ, But that still doesn't mean that this was easy for Jesus. I mean, don't miss his anguish in this moment. It was in the garden that Jesus, in his humanity, fully human, in his humanity, demonstrated his great need for his father. At his most difficult moment, he hit his knees and prayed. And when you're facing difficult times, the best thing you can do is hit your knees and pray. It was through this prayer that Jesus found the strength to live and to serve And to give his life, it was through his prayer that he was able to surrender his own will to his father's will. I love what Andrew Murray writes. He says, Doing the Lord's work is not a duty performed in one's own strength. No, that is impossible. God must have entire possession of us. He claims our whole heart and life. He will give us the strength to keep his commandments and to abide in his love. And Jesus started after praying, started out of the garden, and soon a familiar face emerged out of the darkness and walked straight up to Jesus. He he greeted Jesus with a typical Middle Eastern greeting, and he leaned over and kissed Jesus on the cheek. But Jesus asked him, Scripture tells us, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus was arrested, and he was led away. And over the course of a long night, he faced a series of trials and interrogations. And finally, with no real evidence against him, The high priest said, tell us if you are the Christ. Are you the son of God? It was a loaded question. It was a decisive moment. And Jesus said, yes. And they immediately lashed out and they accused him of blasphemy. They spit in his face, they covered his head and they beat him. They tortured him by whipping him across his back. Many people, many people who went through this died just during this torture, but Jesus wouldn't die. I mean, this is, this is something that we so often miss about Jesus. We see these pictures of Jesus holding a little lamb or you know, Jesus with these kids around him, but he wasn't a sissy. I mean, Jesus was tough. I love what Pastor Dave Stone said about Jesus. He said, he was a, manly, a godly man and a manly God. And finally, they took him to the cross. And on the cross, this is our fourth location. This is here we get our final lesson. On the cross, Jesus modeled love. You know, the Gospels recorded just three short words that says they crucified him. No details, didn't really need him back then. Everyone knew what crucifixion involved. I mean, it was a horrific, humiliating, painful form of death. We know that they stripped him. We know that they nailed Jesus to the cross with uh, four to six inch metal spikes that went through his wrists and through his ankles. It was a slow death of suffocation. Now imagine that you lived in Jerusalem uh, during this time. You would have been used to hearing uh, one of these. One of these a couple times a day. It sounds like this. I think we have a sound. the sound of a shofar. And it's an instrument that was made from the horn of a ram. Most of them would have been bigger than this one. Uh, but the Israelites heard this sound twice a day. And whenever the priest blew the shofar, everyone stopped what they were doing. The, the merchants in their shops, uh, the, the children playing, the laughing moms tending to household chores, the men at work in the field, everybody would have stopped what they were doing. And they all grew silent. Why? Well, the sound of the shofar was a signal that at that exact moment, a sacrifice was being made to God by a priest. It was the sacrifice of a lamb being made on their behalf for their sin, and their silence was an expression of respect and of gratitude for their, for their lamb, for that pure and spotless lamb that covered their sin. See, from the very beginning, God has required a blood sacrifice as payment for sin. Even if you go back all the way, to the very first week of this series, to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve committed that first sin, we see that uh, after they committed that first sin and they realized they were naked, that the Lord God made garments of skin, of animal skin for Adam and for his wife and clothed them. And those animals had to die to cover Adam and Eve's, Adam and Eve's sin. God killed those animals. And then we saw early in the story that God implemented this series of sacrifices to atone for or pay for sins. I mean, God was conditioning his people. He was conditioning the Jewish nation to understand that sin brings death, that sin is costly, that it's messy. And he reminded them of this twice a day. Every day at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. the shofar would sound, and it coincided with that exact moment that a lamb would be slaughtered for their sins. It was an ongoing reminder to the Jewish people that there is a cost involved with forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22 spells it out this way. It says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But as John the Baptist reminded us, Jesus is the lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. When was Jesus crucified? Well, Mark 15.25 says that it happened at nine in the morning. And Jesus died, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at three in the afternoon. Shofar time. And here was the scene on Good Friday. Hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of people poured into Jerusalem, crowding the city on that day because it was the last day to travel before the Passover holiday. Remember, Friday at sunset was the start of the Sabbath and people weren't allowed to work and travel was counted as work. And there's this eeriness Because the whole city is covered in darkness in the middle of the day. Scripture tells us that there were dark clouds that hung over the entire city of Jerusalem that day. But still, there's a hustle and bustle as people prepared their feasts. They probably didn't realize what time it was because of the darkness. But all of a sudden, at 3 o'clock, they heard that familiar sound. And at that moment, inside the walls of Jerusalem, it got quiet. As everyone knew that a sacrifice was being made on their behalf. What most of them didn't realize was that the real sacrifice was not happening inside the temple, but it was outside the walls of the city. Before Jesus died, he spoke his final words. He said, it is finished. What is finished? What does it mean? It means the debt has been paid. That word finished is a merchant's term. It was used in accounting circles. Jesus was saying, it's been paid. It's been paid in full. The sin has been paid for. The debt has been paid. The price of sin has been paid once and for all. Now there's a way to be forgiven for all time, for all sin. The debt is paid once and for all. It's the entire culmination of this story we've been working through for the last 26 weeks, beginning with the fall in the garden, resolved finally at the cross. Because of Jesus, you can find your way back to God. Because of Jesus, I can find my way back to God. Romans 5.8 said it this way, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to make the first move, he did it. And the victory was won on the cross. God provided a way back into relationship with him through the life of his son. He, he paid the blood price for our sins and not just so that we can live in heaven with him someday, although that's going to be great and glorious and it's important, yes. But, but the scripture tells us it's so that we can have eternal life. And that eternal life starts now, even as we learn from the example that Jesus set in the last week of his life. We can model, watch him model courage and service and prayer and love. And he's the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect example. I mean, think about this. I... I have mercy for people I love, but my mercy is limited. I mean, even if it's my kids or my wife, I can take so much. And then I get fed up. I get impatient. That's not what Jesus' mercy was like. It was endless until he lost his life. That's the kind of mercy we get. Because of his great mercy, our debt is paid. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for that. The, just the very idea that we deserve death, but you thought we deserved better. That you needed to make a way for us to be forgiven of that. I'm so thankful for that. God, how can you look at us and our sinful selves and think, you know what, I, I love you. I want you to be restored. I want that sin to be taken away. And I love you so much that I'm going to pay the price through my only son what a miracle. Thank you so much for that. We are so thankful for that part of the story and the way that um, you never stopped working to pursue us, that your mercy was so great that you were willing to die on a cross for our sin. The death that we deserved, you paid the price. God, I know that there are, I'm sure that there are people here in this room that, that never realized that before, that have never made that step to make you the Lord of their lives. And if you're here and you're in that category right now, you, you think, well, I, I want that forgiveness. I, I want to be forgiven for my sin. I, I've messed up and I've, I've tried to fix it myself, but I'm tired of it. Um, you can pray this prayer with me. Just say, God, I need you. I want to accept the work that your son did on the cross. I need you to come into my life and forgive my sins. God, I need you to send your Holy Spirit into me to, to show me how to live. I need that example in my life. Thanks for that now, God. We, we just want to celebrate your love and your mercy uh, and the way that you gave up your son on the cross for us. In Jesus' name, amen.